Well, here we are again, another week through the New Testament, the week of November 20th through November 26th. This is week number, I think, 47, almost done with the year. And so we're wrapping up, coming rapidly to a close here in uh, the last epistles of the New Testament before we head into the closing book, uh, the Revelation of John. So um, I hope you're doing well, and this is the week for Thanksgiving, isn't it? And I hope you have a a wonderful um, Thanksgiving, uh, that you have a a great time, and and who knows, maybe something apocalyptic will happen, like the Lions winning a fifth game in a row, or would that be a fourth game in a row? Something like that. And it would be, uh, you know, that has not happened in a while. Okay, so... We are here, we're going to talk about the the whole week this week is just in 1 John, 1 through 5. So here we are, John, the writer of the gospel of uh, John, the son of Zebedee. Um, his brother James was a uh, an apostle as well with him. They were followers of Christ. And here he is writing this letter um, along with 2 and 3 John um, at the end of his life. Um, here he is, he's writing these probably around 90 to 95 AD. So these are very, um, you know, we're almost getting to the turn of the century of 100 AD. So this is a long time, relatively speaking, right after Christ has, uh, has, uh, ascended, died, rose and ascended. Um, and here is John. He was the, it seems the last of the apostles to live. Um, he died peaceably, it seems in, uh, was not martyred for the faith. And here he is, he's writing these from Asia Minor and writing them to churches in and around Ephesus, uh, writing this letter and all of these letters. Actually, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all written in this this time period and to the same general region and from the same area. And and what is going on here is, in 1st John at least, we have, uh, there are these false teachers who are going around. And John is going to write the Christians there to reassure them of the gospel truth and and of the the foundational confidence, um, the assurance that we have in Christ. Second of all, in Second John, there's these other false teachers that are going around and traveling. Um, imagine that false teachers going around trying to spread their ideas, and uh, he's going to deal with that. And then later on in Third John, he's going to deal, especially with a man named Diotrephes, um, who likes to put himself first and thinks he's the he's the big cheese, so to speak. And, and John is going to write um, against him. So here he is. John is writing them uh, to reassure them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, of um, of what they have in Christ, and also to it calls them to extend hospitality uh, to false teachers, and um, also how to deal with uh, people that have big big personalities, or rather not big personalities, but really uh, who try to put themselves first in, in all they do, like uh, like uh, this this man did. So uh, today for First John, the overall, what I want to do is something, um, uh, again, this is different than what we've done before. Um, this is from a guy named Dick Lucas. Now, Dick Lucas was a, a minister in the Church of England at St. Helens, um, and he pastored at this church from 1961 all the way to 1998. Um, he was, uh, I think he may still be alive. And if you go to his, if you type in Dick Lucas, um, maybe St. Helens Bishop gate, <laughs> such a British name. But if you if you search that, you'll go to the church website and there's all these resources available, um, from his Bible teaching ministry. Uh, he is, I think, uh, he came over to, um, 
Parkside Church at the Basics Conference before. Um, he's with Alistair Begg, right? And he's he's been uh, very uh, helpful and influential in that. Um, so he's got these uh, recordings uh, that are called From My Study to Yours that are audio recordings aimed at helping people study and teach the Bible. And here I found on a website, Monergism, they have a study of First John by Dick Lucas. It's kind of an introduction, an overview kind of feel. Um, and I want to try this just because I think, you know, we could dip and dive into the book, but maybe it would be helpful to kind of get an overview look at this whole book and what it has uh, to teach us. And so we're not really going to look at second and third John really. And next week, we're those are the readings for next week, but um, probably won't dive into those. But um, anyway, just so you uh, just so you know, <clears throat> well, we won't dive into those, I should say. Um but uh, this will give you an idea of kind of where John is coming back, at least for First John, and I, I hope it'll be helpful. And uh, and yeah, the, I'm also kind of I've kind of adjusted. I've uh, I think I've taken a few uh, I've taken a few sections out of it, um, a few sentences here or there or par- whatever you know sections just just because not much, but uh, because I think it was originally given and meant for pastors these lectures. But um, I think it'll be helpful for you. Uh, it'll be helpful for me as we kind of think about what are we reading when we're reading this this letter from first john so here i am sitting here today and i got my coffee in hand so um let's take a drink of coffee together and if you got your coffee with you take a drink with me and then we will begin um uh, this podcast together all right there we are we're back okay so uh he says this beginning in first john 5 uh 21 dear children Keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He says this, Westcott's comment on the above was, this comprehensive warning is probably the latest voice of scripture. If so, John's final warning to the church is now as then as a solemn one. Idolatry in its numerous configurations is the normal religious condition of fallen mankind. Whether in sophisticated first century Athens or among the tribes of the Amazon forest today. In a world hostile to the claims of the true God for his son Jesus Christ, it is the only form of religion that is acceptable. Satan's masterpiece would be to lead Christian churches back into idolatry while they still retained all the outward form and structures of Christianity. Not that this is an original plan. Satan was never a creative thinker, since Bible history is a record of declension from true theology and a pure worship until prophets and apostles expose religious seductions for what they are and call God's people back to himself. The enemies in 1 John are the Antichrist, 2.18 and 19. Remember, they opposed apostolic standards by providing a rich and attractive counterfeit Christianity. In truth, their claims to superior experience and a higher knowledge of God were such that faithful believers were badly shaken as to the genuineness of their own spiritual state. Hence the strong strand of reassurance, not first-time assurance for new converts, as the tradition has it in every part of John's letter. Fundamentally, the Antichrist rejected what John describes as the historic testimony to Christ. Again, remember that to lose fellowship with the apostles and their doctrine or teaching is to lose fellowship with the Father and the Son. Any form of Christianity that does this is by definition idolatrous. The hallmarks of the Antichrist were three. One, they hated the brethren among whom they had once belonged, 2, 9 through 11, and 3, 11 through 15. They espoused lawlessness, by which John means that they refused to live by the authority of God's word. 
Hence the repeated emphasis in 1 John on the necessity of obedience. 2, 3, 3, 21, and 5, 2. They denied the Son, the Word made flesh, as the one indispensable mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2, 7. Hence the many references to the propitiating sacrifice of Christ. The most straightforward application of 1 John to the modern scene is to that hollowed-out Christianity resulting from three or more generations of so-called liberal theology, in which the modern mind believes only what it can accept on its own terms. This equals the essence of idolatry, where man is the measure of all things. Nevertheless, it passionately believes in the spirit of the age, as painfully demonstrated this month, which was in February of 2007, by the Episcopal Church of America. Riddled with political correctness, it is riddled with idolatry, yet is confident of its spiritual leadership. What, however, comes closer to home is when this contemporary version of the historic faith begins to make inroads into British evangelicalism. It has happened before in the liberal evangelical movements that had all but expired by the Second World War, but now shows every signs of reinventing themselves. So, in summary, John's warning is that any departure from the Apostles' doctrine opens the door to new idolatry. The obvious signs of this will be a rejection of the authority of Scripture, a calling in question of the full deity of Christ, His virgin birth and bodily resurrection, a dismissal of substitutionary atonement, and a growing permissiveness in the moral sphere. Warnings of such declension have long been given. The situation is now open to upon us. What John does is to attach to these modern trends the right label. First, we are going to look at the occasion for the writing of 1 John. That is, the circumstances that led to the aged apostle of love to put pen to paper, or whatever you did, to the churches in Roman Asia. There's usually a crisis that causes these letters to be written. It's very seldom that an apostle sits down and writes just because he's got nothing better to do. And there was certainly a crisis here. So first of all, we are going to look at the original occasion that caused John to write to these little apostolic churches. Then secondly, we are going to look at the ultimate message of 1 John. That is, the decisive or final word that makes this little letter so important, both for them in the first century and important for us in the 21st century. Westcott says in his classic commentary of about 1881, this comprehensive warning, the last verse of 1 John, is probably the latest voice of Scripture. Well, final words are often intended to be important, and if this is the final apostolic word to the churches, then it's obviously very important. So, we start then with reasons for writing this remarkable little letter, and this is under a section now where, uh, by the way, this is me talking, but underneath where um, now he's saying, why was 1 John written? So we're kind of asking the question now, what was going on uh, such that 1 John, uh, that John felt the need to put his pen to paper, so to speak? Uh, he says, the standard explanation for the writing of 1 John is chapter five thirteen, and you hear this quoted over and over again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is what Dr. Plummer says. Normally, I entirely agree with him, but on this occasion, I don't. The object of John's gospel, St. John tells us himself, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The object of the epistle, he tells us also, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The comment is that John's gospel is written to show the way to eternal life through belief in the incarnate Son. 
The epistle is written to confirm and enforce the gospel and to assure those who believe in the incarnate Son that they have eternal life. I think this is the standard attitude about the gospel and the epistle, but it was not long into January and February last year that I discovered that this is not so much wholly wrong, but wholly inadequate. In fact, John gives several different clues in the course of his little letter as to why he wrote, and it is unwise to take these verses as though it applies to the whole letter. Usually, these little sentences when he says, I write, refer just there to the paragraph before it. Chapter 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, well, that is obviously not the main purpose, but it is one purpose. He does not want to encourage sin. 2.12, a strange little parenthesis we will address later. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. I write to you, fathers, and so on. And perhaps the most important of all, 2.26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So you see, there are a number of times when he says, I write more than the ones I have quoted, and we shouldn't pick out 5.13 as being more important than the others. I would put 5.13 as being alongside 2.26, for example. We will get a much more accurate picture if we say that John wrote to these little gospel churches and communities, not to assure them about their standing, but to reassure them. These three letters of John were not written at the time of the founding of Christian house churches, but by then many of these churches had been established a good many years. John is writing at the end of the first century. Isn't he the only surviving apostle? I think I'm right in saying he's the only one who died in his own bed. We are right here at the end of the first century, and these churches have been going strong for a long time. So the message of simple assurance of faith and confidence in God through Christ is one that they have known for many years. And he says that actually, in that little parenthesis I mentioned, 2.13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. He means there, by the beginning, the beginning of the preaching of the gospel, the beginning of the whole Christian explosion in Acts and so on. So John is writing to reassure believers whose confidence has been very badly shaken. Their confidence has been badly shaken by the emergence of men whom John calls the Antichrists. 2.26 is, therefore, an important statement, although, of course, it refers to the paragraphs before. Seduction is in the air, and you're not surprised to know that this kind of seduction has been prophesied not least by Paul in his farewell address to the Ephesians. So we read in Acts 20.29 these familiar words. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That suggests people from outside coming into the flock. Acts 20, 30 through 31 is rather different. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now, these are the verses that refer much more accurately to 1 John because these antichrists come in from your own number. That's one of the main things we're going to see about them. So now we're going to ask the question, who are the Antichrists? So the Antichrist, what a startling title it is. I wonder what your understanding of the Antichrist is. I suppose I had in my mind the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, that monstrous figure who will stand at the end of time. Is that what John is talking about? Well, not exactly. I want to say that we hear about these only in John's epistles, and so if we don't know First John, we'll be ignorant of who the Antichrists are and what sort of danger they bring to the churches. 
They were present in the first century. Therefore, presumably, they are present in the 21st century as well. So 1 John is particularly important to warning about these miserable men. Let's turn to chapter 2. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going shows that none of them belong to us. The references to the Antichrist in 1 and 2 John are as follows. 2.18, 2.22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is Antichrist. 4.3 talks about the false prophets who are presumably the same. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And then 2 John 7-8. through 8. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch out. So those are the references in First and Second John. These are the troublemakers who are causing so much confusion, confusion and disturbing the peace of the Christians. Actually, they are not just mentioned here, although they are given a name here. We shall find that we meet them in every part of First John. They are on every page and in every paragraph. They are almost in every line. Echoes of them are to be found everywhere, even though we may not realize it. For example, when we start in chapter 1 and verses 6, 8, and 10 to read those familiar claims, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He's talking there about the Antichrist and their influence on the churches. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, Again, he's talking there about the Antichrist, who not only try to deceive others, but are deceived themselves. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. That's not the ordinary Christians. That's the Antichrist, the troublemakers. We shall see them again in chapter 2. There's a little Greek phrase which simply goes, he who says, verses 4, 6, and 9. Verse 4, the man who says, I know him. That's a tremendous claim, isn't it? I have a real knowledge. I've been enlightened. And the impression is beyond you, ordinary Christians. Verse 6, the man who says he lives in him. Verse 9, the man who says he's in the light but hates his brother. All those references are to the Antichrist and the influence they have on the little churches. If indeed they are having this influence, as we shall come to see later. So real quick before we keep going. You see what Dick Lucas here is saying is that in the background, as we talk about Antichrist and we talk about what's going on, these false teachers are going around um, like wolves going in, right, destroying the, the foundational confidence of these Christians. And so what John is writing to uh, this, these little communities of Christians these, that have been well established um, for some time, he's writing to them to remind them and to reassure them that what they believed is true uh, because they are being uh, maligned or being um, deceived and uh, being tempted to uh, turn away from the gospel of Christ. 
Um, and, and so we see what these, what these antichrists are doing. And that's why he's saying, actually, so as you read first and first John and really second and third John, look, look not simply for where the word antichrist is mentioned, but what teaching is John trying to oppose by what he says? Um, what is the false teaching behind this? Why is he saying this? And what's happening is that there's these false teachers behind the scenes who are opposing Christ and he's addressing them in all sorts of different ways. Now, Dick Lucas says this, five hallmarks of the Antichrist. Um, And so he's going to talk about these five marks of the Antichrist. He says, it's time to get a handle on them. And I think the best place to start is in 2, 18 through 19. I'm going to give you five hallmarks of these men. First, they are already present in the first century, as early as that. See 2.18, but also Paul's man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, is one man, a monster at the end of Christian history. These people are already present in the first century. They are at work with their propaganda in these little Christian communities in John's lifetime. They are already present. They ought to chill us. It means they will always be in the churches. Two, there are many of them. Verse 18, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. And chapter 4, verse 1, many false prophets. Not one troublemaker, though one can be enough in a church, as some of you know. Not like Diotrephes in 3 John, who obviously was a pain in the neck. And there are people like that, aren't there? But here, there are many pains in the neck many diatrophies or whatever they are. So they are already present, point one, and there are many of them, point two. Point three is this. This is very important. They had been professing Christian believers. We see this in 2.19. Remember Paul's warning, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. They came not from the outside, like wolves descending on the flock, but deceitfully from within and therefore unsuspected. Fourthly, they had, however, left these little Orthodox gospel assemblies. The person who helped me most on this is Colin Cruz, and if I'm going to recommend one commentator to you, it would be him. I think it's very thorough and really very good indeed that the one that really woke me up and my debt to Colin Cruz is enormous. He showed me many things about the way in which these people, for example, had left their communities and what that actually involved. So they had left these little early Christian communities, but they didn't leave them alone. They wanted to draw away the disciples after them. Finally, and this is the fifth hallmark, and obviously most important of all, in 2, 22 through 23, they did not acknowledge Jesus as the God-man. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. These tremendous words seem to me to be, the, to be foundational to our understanding of First John. We shall see later on that he describes this particular denial in a number of different ways. It's not just in one way, and that has caused a certain, certain amount of dispute among the commentators as to what he really meant. For two, for example, every spirit, that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Then in 4.15, just simply, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him. So we mustn't take one to the exclusion of the other. Later, I will put them all together and to get some idea of what these men were saying. I will leave that until later, but I do want to reassure you with 2.20, which is remarkable. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, 
and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no one, no lie comes from the truth. So John is saying there that every born-again Christian has an experience of the Spirit, a spiritual provision, the necessary equipment to be kept safe from this kind of Antichrist. So we're not talking now about the brilliant young pastor. We're talking about Mrs. Baggins in your congregation, who may have had no theological training, but she's a dear Christian woman and has been so for many years. She too has the anointing and is just as able as a pastor to understand that the Antichrist is not teaching the true faith. That's very important. Since in recent literature in Christian evangelical circles, we hear a good deal of nonsense about anointings, it may be worth turning to one John and asking what he has to say. And here he says that every Christian has an anointing, the most important anointing you could imagine, because it keeps him or her safe from error. Now, real quick, as an aside, that is a very comforting thing, isn't it, as we read these things, um, because we have antichrists. They are everywhere. There are many of them, uh, as he says, and at least in, in John's background here, where he's writing him. But, but every Christian, every single one of you who believe in Christ, have the anointing from the Spirit to keep you from this false teaching, to, from, to, keep you, uh, to give you discernment, uh, to give you the light. And um, that is so comforting, isn't it? That um, it's not just some pastor or some theologian or some person who teaches at a seminary or a college or who has this degree or that degree. Every single person, the simplest believer, has this anointing. The smallest child who believes has this anointing uh, from the Spirit of God. Okay. Uh, continuing on here, he's talking about exposing the false and encouraging the true. He says, now what it shows is that in this letter, John both exposes the false and encourages the true. He does the two together all the time. I would suggest to you that this is an ideal for anybody who is speaking in Christian service. All good Christian teaching must encourage the faithful, but must also expose the false. I want to suggest to you that that is the perfect pattern for the Christian preacher and it is fascinating how John does this. For example, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. There is a plain exposure of those who make that bogus claim. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. There is a great encouragement. Then we have another exposure. If we claim... And then verse 9, an encouragement, if we confess. He does this alternating, first an exposure, then an encouragement. Don't listen to that, do listen to this. There is a hard evangelical preaching that exposes unceasingly, but doesn't do much positive encouragement. On the other hand, there is a soft evangelicalism that encourages wonderfully clearly and warmly, but seldom, if ever, exposes error. John does both all the time. So one very interesting characteristic of John in this letter is the use of the negative. You'll find exactly the same in John's gospel. It is something I, need, I think we need very badly today on the fringes of evangelicalism where the negative is, oft, is avoided. John says, quoting Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life. Then comes the negative. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the negative interprets the positive. You can't have the positive without the negative. Otherwise, you're not being a faithful preacher. 
And so he does that exactly in 1 John 1, 5, 6, and 8. He, so, he shows the, the negative and then the positive, the negative and then the positive. And you'll find that he does that all the way through his letter. We lie and do not practice the truth. Those two are different, aren't they? They balance each other. It means we're telling a lie about ourselves and we're not in accordance with the truth of the gospel. They're the same truth, but there's a balance there. They are two sides of a coin. Now, let me make a comment here, having given you these five signs of the Antichrist, without which we would get into a dreadful muddle. The concept, of course, that they have left the Orthodox churches must not be institutionalized. We live in a time of churches grouped together in formal denominations and so on, and there's a very great danger of institutionalizing first century truth in a way that's quite improper. For example, the exclusive brother, now whenever he says that, exclusive brother, I think he's talking about a denomination, the brethren, um, who are a, a, a Christian group, I think started probably in the 1800s, um, I believe heavily associated with maybe dispensationalism and such. So um, anyway, that's a, that's a group, just so you know, that's a, that's a type of uh, like a denominational uh, type of Christian, like a, being a Baptist or a Methodist, and there's, there's the brethren. For example, the exclusive brother is taught that if anybody leaves their assembly, they are going out into the world and are no better than pagans. This has led to infinite suffering because people have left the exclusive brethren assembly and therefore have had to leave all their relatives who remain behind. I remember going to see one of the chief mandarins. I don't know what that means, mandarins. Um, that sounds like a, that doesn't sound like the right word, but that's what's on the page. I remember going to see one of the chief mandarins of the exclusive brethren in 1960 when there was a breakup in the Regate and some of the men were coming to St. Helen's Bishopgate. They were an enormous help because they were, they were used to hard work and they knew their Bibles. I remember a senior member of the exclusive brethren saying to me, Mr. Lucas, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will agree with us. The implication is very plain. We are the true church, and nobody outside these boundaries will ever understand the things of God. Now, that is wicked, really, isn't it? Technically and historically, of course, Rome has taken the same position, though they wouldn't say so largely today. Nevertheless, historically, they have said, move outside these boundaries, and you are outside the true church. But what John is saying is in principle. He's not talking about denominations. Presumably, they didn't exist. He is saying in principle, if you leave gospel churches and gospel beliefs and gospel people, that is a very serious sign that something is wrong. I want to make that clearer. If a person who professes to be a real Christian leaves a gospel church and gospel beliefs and gospel people, that should be to them and their friends a very serious sign. It's not a matter of leaving a particular denomination, a Baptist or a Methodist church. It's a matter of leaving behind a Bible church, a real Christian church. Now, he also now is going to talk about remaining in the sun. He says, that's why you get so many comments in First John about remaining. It's a key word. He loves this word, and he plays with it in all sorts of different ways. For example, in 2, 24 through 27, he says, see that, you see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, even eternal life. 
I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Well, he doesn't mean that they don't need pastors and teachers in their church. The secessionists were saying, you need to teach us, teach, you need us to teach you this new way. And John is saying, you don't need these new teachers. The teachers you have always had have led you into the truth. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him. It's the same all the way through. It's a key word, and of course, it is in close connection with what the New Testament is saying all the way through. One of my favorite verses in Colossians is 2.6. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. What Paul says there, John also says in his letter. So, remaining in the truth and letting the truth remain in us is the same idea as remaining in these true communities in which people first heard the gospel and were regenerated by the grace of God. Again, we've got to be careful. I'm going to make little warnings as I go along so you won't misunderstand me. If you've been around as long as I have, you will know many who have at one time professed the faith of the gospel but have, as they would have put it, moved on, grown up beyond these elementary beginnings. I think of the Cambridge University Christian Union Mission of 1949 with Dr. Barnhouse. What a wonderful mission it was, with many people in the university really being converted. I think of one of the men I knew who was converted. I think he did move on from the truths that brought him face to face with Christ at that mission, but I would be very surprised to hear that he had denied the Son. He's still within the boundaries of the Orthodox Church, so I don't want to push him outside those boundaries. So it is possible, isn't it, to grow beyond those early truths that led you to Christ and still be a Christian? On the other hand, it's a dangerous signal and may mean that you're moving out further and further and will then cross the boundaries. We shall have to have discernment here. We shall have to be clear about what is secondary and what is primary. And we shall discover that the Antichrists cross primary boundaries, not secondary boundaries. And what he's getting at right there real quick before we go on, is, right, the Antichrist, whenever he says about, uh, you know, deviating from the faith and such on, such, it's not about questions about uh, the secondary matters, you know, like, um, well, we could talk about the mode of baptism. Should you sprinkle in baptism or should you immerse in baptism? Does it matter or does it not matter? Or um, should you baptize babies or should you not? Should believers only be baptized or can others be baptized? Or what type of church government you use? Do you have bishops or do you just have a local church? Or do you have, you know, this or that or the other thing or uh, various other beliefs? What he is saying here in this is that when, that these, um, when we talk about people, uh, you know, who are in danger, so to speak, from really moving on or or not remaining, we're not talking about, you know, uh, having different opinions or beliefs or convictions about those kinds of matters. But what we're talking about is the most important things like, do you believe Jesus Christ is the son of God born of the Virgin Mary? Do you really believe he died and rose again? Are you trusting him only and what he did for us for your salvation? Or are you trying to do something else on top of that for it? Um, do you believe in there's a resurrection to come, a heaven, a hell, those kinds of things, right? Those primary things. 
Not, again, don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying that the the mode of baptism or who should be baptized or the way your church is operating or any number of other issues are unimportant, but they're not as important as those key most important gospel issues. And that's that's really what uh, Dick Lucas is saying here. That's what John is worried about, and is that are we remaining in Christ, or are we, are we going to deviate and leave and follow these, these antichrists who are trying to lead us astray? So, uh, continuing on here with, with uh, Dick Lucas, he says this, Let me define antichrist a little further. When you see the word antichrist written down, you immediately think of someone who is an opponent of Christ, and of course that is undoubtedly true. Some who leave evangelicalism do sadly become opponents, even bitter opponents of the gospel they once embraced. But Antichrist has as well, I think this is very important, uh, the the idea of a rival Christ. We use that of the anti-popes in the medieval times. I think I'm right in saying that there in the course of church history, there have been 25 anti-popes, that is, rival popes, set up in Avignon or somewhere else like that, who claimed to be the true Pope over against the one at Rome. And so what he's talking about is his true historical fact. At some point, there were multiple popes um, who were rival popes of the, of the church. Um, and you can, you can look that up. So what he's saying is that it's similarly, that's what was going on here too. It wasn't so much they were saying simply that getting rid of Christ, but they were trying to set up a different Christ as well. So when the word anti is used, it means not only an opponent, but a rival. So the term does not simply mean simply opposing. It includes the idea of counterfeiting. Plummer again, the Antichrist is therefore a usurper who under false pretenses assumes a position that does not belong to him and who opposes the rightful owner. For example, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 where Paul talks about deceitful workers whom Satan sends into the church who appear to be genuine, but are actually fraudulent. So it does mean opponents and adversaries and enemies, and they can do us much harm. But our opponents may frighten us, but they, don't, but they won't deceive us. It looks certainly as though increasingly our government is becoming hostile to Christian claims, and that was certainly true in the first century. That may alarm us as we see some of the stupid things being done by ministers at the moment in the imagination that they can curtail the witness of Christians. But I don't think that they are counterfeiting Christians. The counterfeit claims superior powers, advanced knowledge, and a deeper spiritual experience. And I don't think any of these government ministers would claim that. So what he's saying here, by the way, is this, right? That that what we're getting at here is the... The rival Christ, the rival people are saying, they're claiming not simply that they're, they're not opposed, but they have a rival. And so they think they have superior abilities, advanced knowledge, and deeper spiritual experiences. That, that's fine if you want to stay there, they're saying. But if you really want to go deeper, come follow us. Now, obviously, he writes, these kinds of claims, if we claim to be without sin, what a claim. If we claim to be to know him, to be in him. These tremendous claims, which apparently some of the Antichrists were making, shake the assurance of the ordinary Christian. Chapter 1, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, and chapter 2, verses 4 and 6 and 9. On chapter 1, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, Michael Eaton, whose little commentary in the Focus series is excellent, and I recommend it here, recommend it, but here I think he makes a small mistake, says, if it had been the Antichrist who had made these claims, it would run if they claim. 
Now, there may be some truth in that. They may have had effects in the churches. So John writes, if we claim, but that doesn't follow grammatically at all, does it? If I'm giving a talk to some young people and I say, if we claim that there is no hell, we contradict the teaching of Christ. That's a normal way of talking, isn't it? I don't mean that I'm claiming that. I'm just saying, if we claim that, then we're making a mistake. And there obviously are people who do claim that. So when John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, he's actually talking theoretically, in a sense, but his finger is pointing at the Antichrist. How much influence they are having, no one can tell. This shaking of assurance happens, of course, within the boundaries of the real Christian church. If a Pentecostal friend of yours, who is as sound as a bell on the person of Christ in the atonement, tells you that unless you speak in tongues, you're not experiencing the Spirit of God, that will shake your assurance, will it not? I can remember a dear friend of mine from college days who told me that we've all been missing the best and explained to me the new charismatic experience. When people do that, it does shake your faith. You think, have I missed out? Am I properly founded? Have I really known the Spirit? So these superior claims can shake Christian confidence. But in that case with the Pentecostal, it's well within the boundaries of orthodoxy. So it was with the full gospel businessmen international, who at one period began to come to our Tuesday lunchtime services. They espoused that Jesus bore our sicknesses as well as our sins on the cross, and therefore if we put our faith in Christ crucified, we shall be perfectly healed. And they stood at the back after the service and drank coffee and chatted with young Christians and said something like this, What Dick has been telling you is wonderful, but there's more to it. Now, that shakes your confidence in the preacher and in what you've heard. In the end, sadly, I had to ask them to go because they were causing a great deal of difficulty with many young believers, recently converted. Now, we can identify these false brethren with the heretics in the first century. This is a very, oh, excuse me, that's a question, not a statement. Now, can we identify these false brethren with the heretics of the first century? This is a very important question for those of you who have a great sheaf of commentaries at home and know something about the problems of the first century. Moving around in the first century church were the Docetists, the Cerinthians, and the Proto-Gnostics, as Carson calls them. It was in the second century that Gnosticism was fully developed, but there must have been some seeds of it in the preceding century. And this kind of quasi-Gnosticism is, of course, always with us. It's the brother who comes to you and says he's had some great experience and he knows. No argument will ever reach him. He knows. He's superior. God has shown him. That is the characteristic mark of Gnosticism, which has been with the church for 2,000 years. It does seem that the heretics of 1 John are not precisely the same as the Docetists, the Cerinthians, or the Proto-Gnostics. In other words, the cap does not fit well enough. This is the conclusion of Howard Marshall, whose commentary in the New International series is a very sound and good one, and it's the conclusion of Colin Cruz. So, if I may quote from a very learned theologian called Schnackenberg, a Roman Catholic commentator who gives us some very fine work on these letters, he says, The heresy which occasioned first and second John cannot be paralleled with any other manifestation of heresy known from that era. Yet, this is important, it has affinities with more than one such movement. Now, I think that's very balanced. Yes, it does have affinities, as we shall see when we look at some of the problems in chapter 5. All those heretics played down the historic person of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And that person of Christ is absolutely central, of course, to First John. 
Many of you will be experts in the various creeds, like the Creed of Constantinople, which we know as the Nicene Creed. I remember taking up a prayer book and simply adding up the lines. As you know, the Nicene Creed tells us about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. About the Father, we have three lines. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and and so on. About the Holy Spirit, we have nine lines. Of course, it will be different according to different printings. There are nine lines about the Holy Spirit and the church and the resurrection and so on. About the person of Christ in the middle, 16 lines. Isn't that striking? Three lines, 16 lines, nine lines. Now, what the Nicene Creed tells you is that for the first three centuries, that was the battleground. That every phrase you've got there, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation, every one of those was a battleground. Every one of those has been fought for. Every one of those has been defined until finally it is precisely what the leaders wanted to say is the teaching of the Bible. Now, I didn't need much persuading on this business because I for a long time had had the conviction that God providentially doesn't allow us to make a tight connection between the heresies we read of in the New Testament and the heretics of our day. What he gives us is sufficient evidence to gain the principles of heresy, which we shall apply in a number of different ways. The point is obvious, isn't it? Supposing actually this heresy was docetism, denying the real humanity of Christ— Well, then what's the end of the matter? Is anyone here a docetist? Of course not. I'm sure there aren't any docetists in your local church, so we don't need 1 John. Throw it into the waste paper basket. The warning is redundant. We don't need it. But we can see that some of the docetists and Corinthians' principles turn up here in modified form, causing trouble in John's churches in all sorts of different ways. In fact, one of the difficulties I found in 1 John is that the errors of the secessionists I'm now going to call them secessionists following Cruz. I think that's a good name for the Antichrist. The secessionists, people who have gone out, seem to be mutually contradictory. On the one hand, they believe this, and then they believe something that seems to be contradictory. And yet you find it applies so much to things today. So as we wrap up here, and as we kind of come to a close here on this 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 uh, lecture here on First John and such, I think that's some very fascinating information um, about what we're reading here in First John, about whenever you're reading this, this letter this week, and as you go through it, ask yourself, what are these antichrists teaching? And notice he calls them secessionists, like whenever he, using the word like, um, like whenever the, the Civil War, right, in the American Civil War, when those states seceded, withdrew, pulled out, left. And that's what these antichrists are trying to do. They're trying to leave and pull out, but they're also trying to take people with them and unsettle the experience and the beliefs of these Christians. They're coming and saying, listen, that's great what you've got, but there's something so much more here. And they're trying to unsettle the the beliefs of these Christians um, who are being told that simply trusting in Christ, his blood and his humanity and his shed blood and death for us on the cross and his resurrection, his real physical resurrection, and just trusting that is, they're saying that that's not enough. You can live above all known, you can, you can live above sin, right? Because John even says, if we say we have no sin, 
Uh, because apparently it seems that some of them were saying, no, yeah, you know, you don't have to sin. But then, you know, anyway, you can see what's going on here. And I think that might be helpful for you as you read through First John and even Second and Third John as well, right? That as we deal with these things, these letters have perennial applicability to us and to our current situations. So I pray and I hope that that will be helpful to you. I appreciate you listening to this. And uh, if you ever have any questions about First John or any of these these readings, Uh, please let me know. I really appreciate you listening. And uh, so I look forward to being with you next week. We're going to go from 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and then begin Revelation. Take care. God bless.